Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, where we engage with culture and equip the local church in faith and ministry. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the Communications Coordinator at High Point Church. Today, I'm hosting this Ask Me Anything follow-up episode, where we answer the remaining questions from the AMA time after our Sunday service. Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, preached on sacrifice out of Nehemiah 11, so he'll answer questions related to the sermon first before moving on to some unrelated questions. We'd love to have you join us for future AMA times on Sundays at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. If you have any further questions, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. I'm Ashlyn, and I'm here with Nick. Do you want to say hi? Hey. <laughs> um, and we're going to do the Ask Me Anything follow-up questions from uh, today, this past November 1st. It is actually November now. Um, mm. Yes. Uh, and yeah. so let's just get right into the questions. Um, you preached um, a lot on sacrifice today. And so regarding sacrifice, is it objective or subjective? Can something be a sacrifice mm. from one person's perspective, but not from another? Um, well, there are quite there are quite a lot of questions in this. So let me start with that. Yeah, I mean, um, when I talked about sacrifice in the sermon, what I said was that looking at it from the perspective of peace and prosperity. So, like from a perspective of like even of wholesome creation, but in some sense, you could say worldliness, like not including certain ways of calculating whether something is. So, for example, from one perspective, nothing a Christian ever does is sacrifice. Because if, in fact, God remembers and rewards everything, in the final analysis, nothing is really lost, right? In net, there's only gain. But but there still was loss. There still were all kinds of things that you had to forego. And whenever you forego something, even if you're rewarded for it more later on, it's still a sacrifice. And so I think that Christians will always experience, and I think almost every human will experience sacrifices in one way or another. And I think those sacrifices are objective in the sense that you forego something, you give up something, you sacrifice something for something else. When you do that, it is sacrifice, objectively speaking. How much it hurts you, I think, is subjective. And relative to things like your values and your expectations and things like that, as these other questions ask Mm -hmm. about. Um, so then the second part of this was how should we consider or relate to our own sacrifices and other people's sacrifices? How should we relate to them? Yeah. yeah I mean, in some ways I tried to answer that in my sermon, right? That we should relate to the sacrifices of others by being thankful and respect and showing respect for the, those who make noble sacrifices. So obviously you could sacrifice your time to be a workaholic, to get a lot of money later in your life. That would be a kind of sacrifice, but it's not really a noble sacrifice, right? But some of that work and time you sacrificed, you may have done noble and helpful work for other people that was wholesome in, um, in improving to their lives. And to that extent, they should, you know, we should be thankful and care about that. So like the Bible emphasizes like the elderly, our parents, Um, people who are leaders over us, like elders and deacons, especially those who are teachers of the church or leaders in the church, Um, people who bear the weight of responsibility so the rest of us can flourish and mind our own business and do our own thing a lot more. Those kinds of people who make that possible should receive our thankfulness and respect. And, And what Roman says also is just God in creation, because God took the responsibility to create everything that he deserves our our affirmation, like our belief in his existence and our, our thankfulness. Mm-hmm. 
So I think that there are certain responses of care that are due other people that they deserve. And if, if other people deserve it, then giving it to them is an act of justice and therefore required and right and obligatory, right? For ourselves, I think what I said in my sermon was, you can't have a martyr complex about your sacrifices. Those that you choose or those that come into your life, you have to accept in relationship to the gospel as part of your calling or your election or your choice mm-hmm. or whatever. And so you ha- you can't be angry about other people not having to bear those responsibilities. Um, you you can't you can't allow your sacrifices to embitter you. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? And therefore, yeah. my fourth point today that you, we need to reflect on and engage with our sacrifices like a Christian, recognizing that we walk in the way of Christ and that He's counting us worthy to suffer in His name, and that He He rewards every sacrifice done in His name. I think those are the ways that we have to relate to them. Right. So then is it fair to say that what we consider sacrifice is tied up with the expectations that we have for our own lives? Yeah. I mean, when you want something and you aren't going to get it because you changed course mm-hmm. and you count that a sacrifice that is somewhat related to your expectations or your hopes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, assuming though that your expectations have some objective merit, like you could have wanted something that you, you know, walk away from that you were never going to get. You know, you'd be like, well, I was going to be president, but then I decided to, you know, do this and you were never going to be president. You know, like that, you know, there's, there's always that kind of factor, but yeah, generally speaking, your sense of loss is usually connected to your sense of expectation, but I don't know that that's really all that relevant because usually our expectations are kind of messed up. Either we have much greater expectations than we should have or much lower or much different. And so um, I think that there's another way to calculate our sacrifice that God will do, and it won't have much to do with our expectations. Mm-hmm. And that's the calculation that will matter. Yeah. Yeah. Like I find sometimes my expectations are like really f- fleshly or worldly. Right. Mm-hmm. And so then to consider the fact that, to, to consider that like I didn't fulfill that expectation, uh, it's not necessarily a sacrifice in that, in that context, I would think, but um yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I, I just, I, I want to make clear that sometimes when I preach, I'm going to use words or things in a certain way in that sermon relative to specific content for that day. Mm-hmm. I'm not, the stuff I'm saying about sacrifice, I'm not saying that exactly the way I talked about it today is the way everybody should always talk about it. What I'm trying to do is to like tease out or to draw out some of the implications, subtleties of the nature of sacrifice so that we understand it on a heart level and conceptually better. I'm not saying that people should like use all these same words I'm using. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So how you talk about sacrifice, you're going to have to figure out that for yourself in a way. But these, I try to lay it out in certain contrasts and certain relationships today that will help people conceptualize it more clearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Next question. If tragedy is required for romance and tragedy entered creation with the fall, was there no romance within the Trinity prior to the fall? Or is the story of romance unique to the creation of humans and commencement of that story? You know, I wasn't really trying to create that technical definition of romance in my sermon today. So I, I don't want to pretend that like I have the definition we all should function for. Again, it goes back to that right. issue of like, I'm trying to help conceptualize something. I'm not trying to tell you how to talk about it. I do th- think in human romance and the way that we find ourselves to be passionate about things, usually there is a tragic nature bound up in it somehow. Um, which is why sacrifice is usually... Um, built into how we engage with it. And so marriage is a good example of that. We make a covenant recognizing that in order to have a lifelong love affair, there's going to be costs 
And one of those costs is to bind ourselves to each other in a way that we can't break without breaking ourselves. And so I think in the curse, under the curse, I think romance always has a tragic element to it. I'm not saying that there is no kind of romance that could exist between the persons of the Trinity. I think that there was a dynamic love that existed between the persons of the Trinity from eternity past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like- I don't, I don't know what that means when the persons of the Trinity are one in being. So I like sometimes people talk about like the inner dynamic and communal love of the triune God. And I'm not even sure we know what that means. I think that's a way people conceptualize love and try to understand love in the very being of God before there were others to love. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but I've never been that moved by that theology because I don't one, I don't find it discussed in scripture at all. Mm-hmm. And also I don't find it to be that conceptually helpful personally. Yeah. I know some people yeah. really love that idea and I just don't, I don't find it that helpful or illuminating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It feels like there's two different contexts for this, the, what mm-hmm. you were talking about applying to human, like human romance and then trying to, extrapolate that to the Trinity prior to the fall seems like. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that theology is wrong. When people talk about that there being a relationship in the being of God himself, I'm not saying that's wrong. Right. I think that whether you consider it romance, I feel like is can be subjective in itself, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like, right. so unless the Bible says something specific about it, I don't know that we can make a conclusion about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Uh, you mentioned that God rewards sacrifice, but not in this life. What did Christ mean in Mark 10, 29 to 30, when he referred to what one would receive in this present age? Truly, I tell you, Jesus Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Yeah, I think that um, – so I do think that this is a reference to God compensating us in our sacrifices in this life. However, I don't think that – so this gets this gets to the issue of like how God, in a way that isn't materialistic, blesses us in ways that have material um, manifestations. So like, um, so for example, if when I became a Christian, my family disowned me, but in the body of Christ, I find a lot of brothers and sisters, Mm -hmm. right? So I receive brothers and sisters, right? But I lost my familial, like blood brothers and sisters, right? Mm -hmm. So you see God is compensating me, right? But I'm, I'm not getting back my blood brothers and sisters. I'm still estranged from my family. Right, so the sacrifice is real, but as as I've said, God rewards the sacrifices that we make. I think some of those rewards come in this life in different forms. I think sometimes He gives back exactly what's been taken away from us, even. Um, but I, but I, I think what I want to say is that if you look at the lives of Christians, it doesn't look like they lost a boat and they get a boat. They lost a job and they get a better job. But like sometimes that definitely happens, and but not always. And I, I think that when we read passages like this, I think what we need to recognize is that the kingdom of God has its own riches, and that when we walk away from worldliness, we walk into a kingdom that has its own riches, even in this world. And in that sense, there is a richness in the kingdom of God, and among God's people, that is in some ways greater than the riches we had before, to the extent to which we are transformed to mystically receive them. <laughs> 
So like at, when our heart is changed to see the kingdom and its value, and then we receive the things of the kingdom and their value, like a new family in the body of Christ, we have the ability because of Christ to value them in that way. And so I would say the way I would classify that is I don't think of that as prosperity and peace that it, you could have attained worldly that you burn to ashes in order to be Christ's. You do that. And then God through a spiritual means compensates you in this life and in the one to come. And so I think Jesus, so, so yeah, I'm not, I, I'm saying that this is, this passage does talk about something that's very real and I'm not denying that what I'm saying, mm-hmm. but I, I wouldn't say that this passage answers all of the questions related to our loss everywhere in the new Testament. If that makes sense. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where it talks about in, in Peter and in Hebrews about like the, per, the fiery trial we're under and the persecutions that we suffer and the plundering of our possessions and all those kinds of things. Um, I think you're getting back something different and it, it matters because it's part of the kingdom of God. So James, Peter and John can be humiliated in front of the Sanhedrin but they they're receiving honor from God and then they receive honor in the church. Right. So the, their sacrifice of their good name among their Jewish brethren is in some ways compensated by these new brothers and sisters that they find in God's church. That's, mm-hmm. uh, that's true. I'm a hundred percent. Yeah. Um, but I don't think, but I, but I'm, st- but I would still say that, um, God's rewards for our sacrifices, a, g- a goodly portion of that is not in this life. And there are right. a lot of people who make sacrifices who it doesn't feel like they've received a hundred times more back in this life. Mm-hmm. Right. It takes eyes of faith to see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like this is in a lot of ways there's, you just get a taste right of what the reward will be like. Like when in the example of, leaving your family, but then being welcomed into a church family. Yeah. So like, think about what Jesus literally says here. He's like, so um, anyone who leaves home, brothers or sisters, mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel, fear will receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, and with them persecutions. And in the age to come eternal life. Like how literal do you take that? Right? Like if your mother disowns you, are you going to get a hundred mothers? Right. I mean, the mm-hmm. point of this is not to take it as literally as possible. What it means is like, if my mother would have disowned me when I came to faith, right. And I come into the church and a hundred different women older than me, bless me in some way, honor me in some way, help me in some way, direct me in some way, comfort me in some way. They've all acted in Christ like a mother to me in some way or another. And so Jesus has provided a hundred mothers for me where my one would be lost. Right. Or with children. Like if my children grow up and they decide to not follow Jesus and they, they like attack and besmirch me because I'm a pastor. And they're like, my dad is stupid. And yet all these younger people come under my ministry and are helped by it and strengthened by it and whatever. And they become like spiritual children to me. I could have a hundred spiritual children, even if my spiritual, my children hated me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, like I could lose my home in persecutions, but a hundred different Christians could open their home to me and I have a place to stay. And in that sense, sharing in the gospel, all of those homes are quote mine in a way right? Because God is sharing his house that belongs to this believer with me. But it it doesn't mean if I lose my home, Jesus is going to give me a hundred houses that are all going to be mine. (laughs) Like, like I, like I, because I became a Christian, I don't have the fishing boat I want, but I fished on a lot of Christians fishing boats. 
<laughs> you know, Jesus, Jesus gave me maybe 50 fishing boats, even though I didn't get mine the way I wanted to, or the way I could have afforded if things had been different for me. Right. And so when I look at that, I, I look, I say, God, you know, I like fishing, you know, I can't afford the boat I want. And yet I fished on boats that I never dreamed of having like uh, 50 times nicer than I would have bought, even if I had the money because other Christians have opened doors and shared generously with me. So I think, I think that the ethic of generosity in the kingdom of God among God's people with each other, as they share their possessions with each other and they have like an effective co-ownership, like by, by offering um, in generosity, that's that hospitality. It multiplies the assets and it makes everybody seem like they have, like they have more. And God is providing through generosity, what we could never have by possession. And I, I think that that's one of the ethics and dynamics of the kingdom that like is a multiplier. Right. Yeah. And so I just think, so, so yeah, so, so all that's true at the same mm-hmm. time, I guess is what I was just saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a more point blank question. What's your definition of sacrifice and what is sacrifice not? I think sacrifice is when you you put something to death for some reason, right? Like a a sacrifice historically was like you killed an animal. You gave, you gave up something, you sacrifice something like the thing is no longer yours and you've given it up for some reason. So a a, a sacrifice in the broader definition is anything time you give up something because you think it's right for some reason, that's a sacrifice. And presumably it's a reason because either you will gain a greater benefit in the long run or someone else will mm-hmm. so that it's productive in some way. It is, it is sacrifice is productive loss. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so anything that doesn't follow, fall into those requirements isn't sacrifice. So right. like <laughs> if I pretend I'm giving something up so that I get a bunch of other things, right. Or if I know that if I, if I do one thing, I'm going to get a bunch of other things so that I'm not really sacrificing. That's not sacrifice. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. so yeah, I don't, I don't, don't think I would belabor that too much. Right. But I, yeah, I, think, no, I think that, that's, that makes sacrifice sense. is productive loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let me, there are two more questions that, well, no, three more questions that I think are not related to the sermon. So let me ask one more that is related to the sermon. Uh, one of the sermon points was that God does not let sacrifice go unrewarded. Okay. That sounds almost like a different question, but when sacrificing for God or righteousness, why should reward be a component of the decision to, or to not sacrifice? If you were doing it for the Lord, isn't it wrong for Christians to make sacrificial decisions based on the rewards? For example, I'm not supposed to love sacrificially because if I do, I will be rewarded, but because it is God's will or the right thing. That example, I think was like a mindset type thing. I think your definition answered this a bit, but. Yeah, I guess the, the thing I would add to this is that remember in my sermon, I said before the fall, creation wasn't devouring. Like it went from strength to strength, like one thing grew another thing and there it was life unto life, unto life, unto life. Right. And after the curse, when sins devouring entered the world, sacrifice was necessary to push back the devourer. And so we bring about flourishing at a cost to ourselves because we fight what destroys everything in order to build up and to heal. And so the idea of God's heavenly rewards is that when God puts the devourer to death, when you know death has had its end and there's no longer any sin, um, there is also no longer any sacrifice. 
right? Like the right thing also produces blessing, which also produces reward. There's no distinction. There's no space anymore between what's good and what's right and what's profitable and what's successful and what's beautiful and what's right. It all, it flows together. And so I think in this life, sacrifice, like we, we might sacrifice in the moment to do what's right. And only in the future will we receive reward. But that's only because we live under the curse now. In the, in the future, that which is good is what produces the reward. And the two are the same, right? Because the reward is what grows wholesomely out of the good and righteous act, right? And so we, we do the good partly because we want good to result. That good is, is often what's good for us and because it's good for everyone because it's a wholesome good and a beauty. So, yeah, I think... I, yeah, so I don't think it's bad. I, I think that if you do the good only because you think you'll profit from it, then yeah, I think that there are issues with that related to motivation. Right. I was going to say that I feel like it depends on the reward and your intentions behind the reward, right? You were saying that you could, it might benefit yourself, but it could also benefit another person, right? And if you, mm-hmm. if you're kind of making a false sacrifice to benefit yourself, then I feel like your intentions are are not right <laughs> in that, or they're, they're very self-centered, right? Or yeah. that, so the reward in that case would be very behind like a self-centered motivation. And I mean, in the end, I guess you wouldn't really be making a sacrifice. Um, yeah. But your, re- your reward can be like very, have very honorable intention. Yeah. Well, I think also that um, re- the rewards will be fitting to the good. So, I don't think that like if you help somebody that that means you're going to get like a hundred thousand dollars in heaven, right? right? Like the reward in heaven is probably going to be consummate with the good rather than to like some kind of worldly idea of wealth. And so whatever that reward is, it's probably fitting to the good itself. So if you did the thing out of what Philippians two calls selfish ambition or, or vanity and conceit, when you got the reward, you probably wouldn't even like it. <laughs> right. Cause it might be the redemption of that person you served, which if you care about Jesus, you, that's the ultimate reward. The ultimate right. reward is to serve somebody and for them to be redeemed through it. And if you just want stuff for yourself, that that's like, you're not getting anything, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that God's rewards will be partly consummate with the good itself so that you can only even enjoy the reward if you enjoyed the good itself and did the righteous thing because it was righteous and good. Mm, right. Yeah. So one of the things I always encourage people to say is like, God is setting up a system that you can't cheat. You need to assume that the system God is setting up is not cheatable. So not only are you not worried about other people who seem to be trying to cheat it, but that you don't try to cheat it. You just can't cheat God's system and you shouldn't try and you should trust that it's good. And mm. if you do, you'll find out, you'll, you'll end up realizing that like to do the good for the right reason now produces the good that you will really appreciate in the future. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, great. Um, next, regarding the three persons of the Trinity, does High Point believe that the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father? Should we understand the Trinity as a hierarchy? Um, I don't remember in our statement of faith anything that explicitly talks about eternal subordination. So. I think the answer is no to that. Yeah. Does HBC believe the son is eternally supported to the father? Um, Now uh, the fact that high point doesn't affirm 
explicitly that the son is eternally supported to the father doesn't mean that we denounce it either. Um, according to our official doctrinal statement, we don't take a position on it. Mm-hmm. Um, the One of the reasons why that has become relevant in modern evangelical theology is because it's closely related to some arguments in favor of complementarianism, that there is a uh, okay. relationship of subjugation between men and women, especially within the marriage relationship and in relation to eldership in the church. And so therefore, if the son is eternally subordinate to the father, then you can have a permanent existence of subordination and be co-equal with something. Mm. And so some complementarians argue that the son is eternally subordinate to the father and he is co-equal and God. And so to say that a woman is um, in a relationship of submission in a marriage to her husband or that men should only men should be elders in the local church and that that relationship can be stable and persistent and yet women can be fully co-equal and full image bearers and, and attain to full equality with men right is a parallel argument from a belief about the trinity and so egalitarians vehemently fight that doctrine i don't see anything really in it um I think you can argue it from the scriptures that because God's salvational plan appears to have been from eternity past, that Jesus' subjection to that will was probably co-eternal with that elected plan, and therefore his role in redemption as a subordinate role would have been co-eternal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I also think it gets a, it gets a little fishy because um, – I don't always even know what that means. I know that it's clear that in the state of the incarnation, the son was subordinate to the will of the father expressly. So, and that that was part of his ministry in full humanity. That's absolute. How that works metaphysically, like in the person of God from eternity past, I feel like, I feel like you can make a good argument for eternal subordination, but I still think that there's some speculativeness there. And I certainly don't want the argument for complementarian to ri- complementarianism to rise or fall on that argument. I, I don't, right. you'll, you'll notice, I mean, having been on staff with me, I never use that argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, is there such thing as a carnal Christian? Um, I think so. Um, so for people who aren't familiar with that language, um, there, uh, there is a long debate within the revivalist strand of Christian faith that um, is concerned with the idea of whether or not you could be saved and not really be a disciple of Jesus, right? That you could accept the message of the gospel, that if you believe in Jesus, your sins will be forgiven um, without actually becoming his disciple and learning to obey everything he's taught and growing in godliness and walking with the spirit and all of those other parts of Christian salvation. Can you, can you attain to justification and therefore be saved, but not actually walk with the spirit and therefore be carnal, right? Be carnate carne is Latin for meat. You know, like you're stuck in the meatiness and material nature of the world. You are a Christian, but that's it. You're not a spiritual Christian. And that being a spiritual Christian is like really good but it's actually not required for salvation. Hmm. Right now my now there's, and so in the, in certain, in certain Baptist circles in Wisconsin, Wisconsin has a lot of very conservative Baptists that have a strong negative reaction to Lutherans and Roman Catholics. Right. (laughs) And a, a big part of that is that they believe that Roman Catholics believe that you, they, that 
that Roman Catholics and Lutherans add certain kind of works to salvation and that you, if you believe in Jesus, you are saved. That's it. Full stop. End of story. And your assurance of salvation is not rooted in whether or not you walk with the spirit or you experience the, the work of regeneration so that you see something operative in your life, but it's actually rooted in the objective fact that you accepted Jesus at one point. Right. And that's it. You're going to heaven. Um, that definition of carnal Christian, I think is an exceedingly dangerous one from the new Testament. You can argue for it. You can just quote like Romans 10, nine and say um, that anybody who confesses with their mouth that, that, um, that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that Jesus is Lord and, and, and confesses that God raised him from the dead will be saved. Right. And you can say like, that's it. I did that. So I'm saved. Right. Um, the, the problem with that is, is that if you read all of scripture and you um, you look at how salvation works and how it unfolds and what must produce what and so on. Um, that sort of salvation is very tenuous. Um, John Wesley called it the kind of salvation that sends people to hell with smiles on their faces. That is, <laughs> people aren't Christians. They go to hell, but they thought they were Christians. And so they show up smiling, you know, and then they find out that they were never redeemed. And... Um, people who hold the view that I was speaking of will refer to that as, quote, discipleship salvation. That is that unless you're like a disciple and you do all the discipleship stuff, you're not saved. And of course, they believe that that's a salvation by works. They're like, look, if you have to be a disciple to be saved, if you have to like be godly and walk with God and walk in the spirit and obey everything Jesus commanded to be saved, then that's all part of the criteria for salvation. If you add those things as criteria salvation to the pure gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus for you, you're adding works to the gospel. That's a works-based salvation. That's not the biblical gospel. You're adding to the gospel. And Galatians says, let everybody who does that be anathema, right? Now, the, the historic Christian doctrine and the Reformed view, um, and I think you would find this in a number, number of traditions, is simply that um, the seed of salvation always grows the plant of righteousness, always. And so if you have somebody who claims to be a believer, right, they claim to have the seed of salvation, that real faith has been shed abroad in their hearts by the Holy Spirit, and they've believed in Jesus as the Christ and been saved. Great. What what um, historic Christian faith teaches, and I think the Bible teaches this if you read it all kind of in context with itself, what then happens is that seed of salvation that God has put in you must grow what we would call discipleship. That is that your heart experiences the miracle of regeneration. You have new desires for the things of God. Those lead you to pursue keeping in step with the spirit, laying aside the wretchedness and weakness of sin and walking in the new law of the spirit, not seeking to earn your salvation, but to walk in God's goodness and all, all the kinds of things that are built into Christian faith. Therefore, if, if the plant doesn't grow, right? Reformed Christians would say the seed isn't there. Full stop. The seed's not there. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in the parable of the sower in Mark 4, there's four seeds and soil. Well, there's four soils, right? There's there's the seed that's thrown along the path, and the birds just eat it up, and it never sprouts. There's rocky soil where the, the plant sprouts, it grows quickly, but then it dies. And then there is plants that are choked and are unfruitful, and then there are plants that are fruitful. Now, some people have interpreted that to mean the first two, the person is never saved, 
right? The, the word of the seed comes and it's either snatched away. They never believe at all. Or there's a lot of people who like believe like a little for a little bit and then they just kind of go right back. And you're kind of like, oh, that kind of sprouted and died super fast. But the the plants that are unfruitful, that's what Jesus says, that there's, there's some plants that grow up and they're choked by thorns and they become unfruitful. So the plant is living, the plant lives, the plant grows through its whole life cycle. It just doesn't produce any grain, mm-hmm. right? And then he said, there's also, there's good soil that produces 30, 50, or 100 times what was sown, right? So some people have argued that, that those plants that get choked out, but the plant doesn't die, it's just not fruitful. That that's a quote, carnal Christian. That mm-hmm. they really do believe they really are a Christian. The plant really grows, but because of these carnal desires, like the things of this world or the desire for other things or their love of wealth and so on, um, the fruitfulness in their life gets choked out, which is a tragedy, but they're not actually damned. They are saved themselves, but they produce nothing. And that's an, that's an incredible tragedy, but they are still themselves saved, right? Um, First Corinthians three, I think has this where you have the person who like does ministry and their ministry is tested by fire. And if they're, if what they do is burned up, they themselves survive as through the fire. Meaning like if you, your house was on fire and you ran out with nothing and your whole house burned down, everything you were for your whole life is gone, but you survive. There's this idea that like, it's possible for a Christian to survive. That is be saved in the end, but have nothing to show for their life. And therefore, very little reward in heaven, very little accommodation of God. They, they'll look back and have been forgiven of their sins, but nothing else. And the tragedy of that will be profound and eternal. Does that make sense? Hmm. Um, yeah. Generally speaking, I think that it's – I think that, so anyway, I think that that's possible. I, I mean, obviously, all Christians are infected to some extent with worldliness. Like if we all look at our lives – we will recognize probably the presence of worldliness on some level and that should trouble us. And so all of us are to some extent carnal Christians or none of us are Christians. Right. (laughs) So, so I do think that there is such a thing as carnality in Christians, but if what you mean by carnal Christian is somebody who shows no evidence of salvation, but is at some point professed Jesus as their savior, I am extremely concerned for that person's eternal well-being. I'm not willing to say, well, they accepted Jesus. They're just a carnal Christian. They're going to heaven. They're fine. God has saved them. They're justified, but they just, their life isn't producing any fruit. Uh, There's too many passages in the scriptures that seem to indicate that that person has not experienced salvation, that what they call faith isn't faith. And so where the real argument ends up coming down is what, what does the Bible mean when it says faith? Does it just mean simple profession? You say it with your lips And it is, or does faith mean that you actually put your weight of trust in something and that it's a more robust concept, right? And that's kind of where the conflict really lies, a conflict which I will not exhaustively resolve at this moment. (laughs) Okay, Um, good, because there's one more question. Um, Have you read the Quran or the Book of Mormon? Which, or then the next question is, should Christians read them? Yes, the answer is yes, I've read both of them and lots of other um, documents from other religions, a lot of Hindu documents and so on. Um, I would not say that Christians should read them. Uh, I think that they can be helpful for Christians to read. Uh, I am certainly not afraid for Christians to read either of those books. The, I mean, I've read the Quran, I think probably four times and it is an extraordinarily tedious book in translation. 
I, I'm open to the idea that if I could read it in the original Arabic, and if I understood the magnificence of the poetry of the sixth century Arabic it's written in, that my heart would be struck and uh, with its beauty. Uh, maybe that's true. I find it to be in English translation, an extraordinarily repetitive and tedious book that I did not find interesting. Um, other than the points of interest relative to like what it says about Mary and Jesus and so on. Um, it will make you immune to lies told about its contents. Um, it does have some really terrifying and horrible contents um, that if you read it, you know that when, when like somebody who's trying to make Islam look good publicly and they're like, well, you know, it doesn't mean that it says these things like, but when you read the certain context, it's very obvious what some of those statements mean. And, um, and you, you, it inoculates you against mis- some of that misinformation. I find the hadiths and the writings of the traditions in Islam much more interesting, but there's like bazillions of pages of those. Yeah. It's just not something somebody can educate themselves on holistically if, for in any meaningful way. Um, regarding the Book of Mormon, if you have Mormon friends and you want to like reach out to them or whatever, um, reading some of the Book of Mormon might be helpful. But the I, I don't see it as profitable. I mean, I've read it. It's it's written in King James English so that it sounds like the Bible so that uneducated people who've read the King James Bible most of their life, who then read the book of Mormon feel like it sounds like scripture. And then when Mormons say, look into your heart and see if it's that you have a testimony of the Holy spirit, that this is the word of God because they read it and no other book really sounds like that. It's, it's, they're not really meant to mimic the language of the King James Bible. Oftentimes people then have this like internal sense where they're like, Oh yeah, this is from God. And then, because it sounds like the Bible, because they feel like it's like the Bible, they then accept it's God's word and become Mormons. And it, it's just, it's a really sad form of mimicry and spiritual manipulation that I am like really down on. And it, it's kind of sad because like, there's some like incredibly nice Mormon people, like Mormons are fantastic folks. And um, I, I, I've met some just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful Mormon people. Um, I really struggle with the hokiness of their religion. And I know that there are atheists like all over Madison that would say that about my faith. Um, but I can, def- but I've tried to defend Mormonism and it can't be done. And I've defended my faith and it can be done. And I'm, I'm unashamed at the difference. And so, um, so I, yeah, be nice to Mormons and stuff, but like <laughs> you're, you're not going to like expand your world by reading the book of Mormon. It's, it's a real, it's also a relatively tedious book that tells stories that have no historical attestation whatsoever. I always joke about this because um, part of the idea in the Book of Mormon is that these the lost tribes of Israel come to America and settle America. And um, first of all, just like on the face of it, it's like utterly ridiculous because like <laughs> like the, in, the the tribes of Israel were in the Iron Age at the time when they would have come over here, right? And the Native Americans here were, were still in Stone Age. Right. So the technological advantage difference would have been catastrophic. Right. And it just so happens that they came to a specific part of central New York where they would have originally settled, um, which is hence the Palmyra thing and all of that. Well, it just turns out that my grandfather Stanford was the lead amateur archaeologist in that entire region for Native American settlements and human settlements in that region. There is zero evidence of any change from the time period assembled and certainly not anybody who was not in the stone age. So like the conquering groups of that time were all solidly stone age people. So like you start to like work some of these ideas and they are just like, they have no relationship to the historical record at all. 
Whereas in the Bible, when you start looking at the historical facts and details that are stated, and we try to confirm those as best as we can in the archaeological tradition, it is astounding how many of them work out really, really, really well. And even in times where like scholars have said, like, we've proven the Bible wrong because we found this archaeological thing or whatever. 35 years later, they find another thing. They realize what they were looking at archaeologically was wrong. And now the Bible bears out really well. So the contrast between the Book of Mormon and the Bible in relationship to archaeological research and studies is astoundingly different. And I would put the two on equal footing at all. So um, I would that... Now, um, the, the New World translation that the Jehovah's Witnesses use of the Bible isn't all that bad. I mean, they've they've screwed with it in certain places where certain Christian doctrines are taken from, like John 1.1. 1, 1. Um, but it's not an altogether terrible translation, but there's no reason to read it. All the other translations are fantastic too and better than it. So, yeah, I mean, it's not a bad thing to familiarize yourself with some of these things if you have Muslim friends or if you have Mormon friends, but I don't think... I don't think it would add to your education. I think you're much better off reading other literature like like Western classics or um, <clears throat> even historical novels about other parts of the world and what life was like there. Um, you know, if you haven't read Gulag Archipelago or The Rape of Nanking or um, like Churchill's History of Britain or like, I mean, there's so many things that you could read that are more <laughs> personally educating and profitable than those sorts mm-hmm. of things. In fact, I would even encourage people relative to Islam to read a history of Islam rather than the Quran in most cases, mm-hmm. because the, the Quran is actually designed to be very repetitive, right? Muslim scholars have said that like, if you've read 10 surahs, you've read the Quran basically, because like it's meant to be a, a like repetitive book of, of recited poetry. Mm-hmm. So you're not supposed to sit down and like read it. It's not a Psalter, right? It's, it's a, it's a series of monologues that are in poetic form. So in that sense, the Quran isn't really meant to be sat down and read cover to cover. If that makes sense. Uh-huh. It's a, it's a family of mono, poetic monologues, but it's not, it's not like it builds or anything. Like it, it doesn't really build. It's just lots of separate like surahs, these, these poetic instructional monologues. That makes sense. So yeah, I, yeah, I'm sorry. I, it feels like I'm rambling a little bit, but I, no, I would say no, you don't have to read them. Great. I felt okay. like as a pastor, I needed to read them. Right. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't think that people can say to you about their worldview. Well, unless you read everything I've read, like you mm-hmm. can't possibly like, I mean, you, like it's, it's kind of like an American being told by people in other countries that you have to speak their language. Like when I, like I was in India and this guy was like, you know, you should really learn to learn to speak Hindi so you can speak to people like me. And I'm like, dude, this is the ninth country I visited. Every time I go to a new country, people tell me, you stupid American, you should learn our language. Well, there's like thousands of other languages. I can't learn every language of every people who wants me to learn their language so I'll be cultured enough to interact with them. Mm-hmm. Like, I would love to learn two or three, mm-hmm. but I can't. I, I mean, can't it really depends on your context, right? Like, if you're going to be a missionary mm-hmm. in, in South America, yeah. I mean, and you should probably maybe learn whatever language they're speaking. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. That's why for most Christians in Madison, you're probably better off reading one of the books by one of the new atheists or something or something that like, like the religion of Madison is secularism. It's scientific, new agey ish, secularistic. It's scientism. It's like we worship science. Mm-hmm. And so that's a religion that we have to do our apologetics in relationship to not really Islam or 
even the people who are Muslims and Hindus in Madison are mostly secular Muslims and Hindus, and the, their salvation is rooted in their education and science because they're very mm-hmm. they're mostly very successful immigrants. Right. And so when I like Manohar was doing ministry with some Hindus, some Hindu folks, and he was talking about faith and he's and these, I like I watched one guy walk up again. He's like, I don't talk about religion, like religion's not a thing. I don't do religion. I'm a scientist. Right. We were kind of kind of proceeding on the idea that like he was a Hindu, but he, he wasn't. He's a secularist. Mm-hmm. If you ask him what's your religion, he'll say Hindu. But that's not really his operative worldview. His operative worldview mm-hmm. is secularism. So I think if you live in Madison and you want to understand the worldview of people who don't share yours, you should study Hinduism. Or I'm sorry, you should, you should study secularity and scientism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Yeah. All right. Anything else to add? Those are all the questions for today. I don't think so. I don't think so. Great. Thanks, Ashlyn. Yep. Thanks. Bye. All right. We'll see you guys soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.